I want to emphasize how much I, at the time, was really looking to our teachers, our educators. I include our deans of culture, uh, our counselors, all the, the wonderful teammates, and just really looking to our educators for their their answers, their creativity. And I think that when we stop believing that fundamentally our educators and our teachers, when we stop believing that they have the answers, then we lose the lifeblood of learning. Everybody knows what a good school looks like. One great teacher in each classroom, dynamic principal, high test scores, order everywhere, schedule set, curriculum specified, teachers teaching, students learning. But what if this framing, though not quite wrong, misses the mark? Maybe a good school is a place where the boundaries separating classroom spaces are permeable and teachers share responsibility for all students' well-being and achievement. Where everything in the school is negotiable except the well-being and development of the teachers and students in it. Where students know they are cared for and respond by learning to care in return. Maybe a good school is a space where all are growing and equity is a constant concern, where each one has a voice and everybody has responsibility, where teachers are leaders and leaders are always learning. Join us for Chasing Bailey as we try to figure this out. Educators who think hard about curriculum know that there are a range of ways of thinking about the course of study to be run in schools. There is, for example, the written curriculum, published by state and district officials. The assessed curriculum, tested to evaluate teachers, students, and schools. The enacted or taught curriculum, worked out between teachers and students in classrooms. The supported curriculum, evident in the materials districts spend money on. The learned curriculum, what students actually know and can do when they depart. And even in many schools, the hidden curriculum, that set of expectations for students that are never written down, but override all other expectations. Today, we are going to explore the curriculum at Bailey in all its facets what policymakers expected, what and how teachers taught, what students learned, and what Bailey became as a result. What we'll see is that teachers created the curriculum every day and in every way as they attended to the needs of students. To tease this out, I sat down digitally with two experienced educators, Principal Christian Sawyer and STEM coordinator Julie Hasfield-Couch, and with two true novices, sixth grade global literacy teacher Chrissy Philodastis and Vanderbilt resident turned eighth grade math teacher Madison No. As we see from the start, the staff at Bailey took the designation as a STEM magnet school quite seriously, but not, I think, in the way anybody at the district office really expected, and led not by what was written down, 
but by what the scholars seem to respond to. Listen to Madison, Chrissy, Julie, and Christian explain to us the difference that the STEM title made, and especially the license it gave them to fail safely. It definitely had an effect on kind of pushing the curriculum to the next level in a lot of ways, um, which I don't even know if I want to refer to as like the next level, but pushing it to um, to a different standard. That, um, but I think even more so, it had an effect on kind of the psyche or the ethos of the um, the building in that um, that idea of of students being scholars and not just scholars in one area, but in science, technology, and engineering and mathematics. And I think. I think we didn't take that to be as like this one um, chunk, like, okay, if we if we do a coding class, then that's enough. Um, but it kind of seeped into every piece of it. And I think it also, I wish we could in include like the global literacy aspect and all of the different aspects that really push the curriculum in different ways um, into that like STEM um, wraparound that we had as part of the curriculum. So I think I think it really influenced how students saw themselves as scholars and how we planned for curriculum in, in different ways because of it. Okay, Chrissy? Yeah, I, I think Madison said it perfectly. Um, you know, I, I came to Bailey, it was July. I think Christian hired me a week before school started and I was, honestly, it was a blur. It was my first teaching job. I was fresh and, um, you know, I, it was intriguing that it was a STEM school. Um, and I, I agree, it, it definitely made the students, the scholars feel like they were at a, being pushed to the next level, which I think is really important for all students. Okay, great, Julie. Yeah, um, so I think that like many schools I've worked with as an educational consultant, STEM was thrown in as a way to get some grant funding <laughs> mm -hmm. without really giving a ton of thought <laughs> into what it actually means. I think that, again, now that I've worked with so many schools around the world developing you know, that STEM identity, Bailey really informed to me what a STEM school is. And it's about solving problems and using STEM school skills to solve them. Um, it's about innovation. And I think what's really interesting when we when we look at you know STEM as a curriculum at Bailey, um, STEM was also if we think about STEM as a design process, as problem solving, that is actually how Christian ran the school as well. We were kind of a lab school. We had the opportunity to try new things and see if they worked test them out to fail safely and to try again. And I think that's part of what led to our success. And I think about my own experience and something Julie just said, um, we were in this state of constantly inventing, reinventing. And I think what was at the center of our thoughts constantly were our students and our students' lives and needs and journeys, identities, at the time, we didn't really have language around culturally responsive teaching. We did know about Gloria Ladson Billings and we had read, but it really wasn't in like district conversation to my memory. And as I really believe deeply, this was the growth from incredible educator, teacher, 
brilliance and talent, that teachers are leaders, are academicians, are filled with ideas and creative solutions to meet their students and help them grow. Um, and in this way, this really was a team invention. Um, and like Julie was talking about, it really kind of felt at times, I don't know any other word, but messy in the way that we were like, we're not using this resource. We're not, let's go here. And the teachers would go and invent these brilliant ideas. And at the time there were some tough conversations with the district because I think there was a paradigm inside some in our, in our world at the time that teachers should follow a scripted plan and follow a prescribed pathway with students. And our teachers were really filled with that whole STEM concept and were constantly inventing just really creative and responsive, engaging lessons uh, at the time. And, you know, I came in with a, a lot of teaching experience. And so I felt really comfortable going to Christian the first few weeks that I was teaching my class. And I said, this curriculum is not resonating with my students. Um, I, I, I really hate it, and I'm going to completely throw it out. And Christian said, go for it. <laughs> and from that point <laughs> on, um, we, we, we changed the curriculum to you know, problem-oriented exploration. And we had the students investigating things that they cared about. And, um, and that really, and forging partnerships. I mean, gosh, we, we had all kinds of partnerships going on with all the projects we were doing. So, um, yeah, I felt a little more comfortable taking that, taking that step and just, you know, throwing it out and, and trying something new. And that we, we are all so united in the way we experienced Bailey. Um, but Christian just gave us the freedom to fail. He gave us the freedom to try new things and test it out, take the things that worked, throw out the things that didn't. And with, with, with at, the, at the core, it was all, we were all headed in the same direction because we were all doing this for the scholars. I want to emphasize how much I, at the time, was really looking to our teachers, our educators. I include our deans of culture, our counselors, all the, the wonderful teammates, and just really looking to our educators for their, their answers, their creativity. And I think that when we stop believing that fundamentally our educators and our teachers, when we stop believing that they have the answers, then we lose the lifeblood of learning. And I think at the time, as I, for example, went to Julie's classroom, I would walk by and students were building robots or reinventing the uh, Bailey Beat, which was our TV station. <laughs> and we're, you know, I'd walk by and a new broadcast uh, script had been written and a new approach in algebra that, you know, Madison had brought in algebra for all of our eighth graders. And I, with all of that said, I want to acknowledge the challenge that I know was also put on our teachers and our educators, because it was, we had to move at the speed of light to reinvent without sort of a roadmap. So I asked them point blank, what was the curriculum at Bailey? Um, I was doing more elementary, like I had the tier three students for the, the literacy portion. So I was doing more like guided reading. And then for uh, content area, it was uh, like for social studies, it was more teacher created and it was 
you know, civil war and, and the, um, like, I don't know. I, I remember I got to say ancients, the ancient cultures, which was amazing. So how did you know what the curriculum was? Did anybody tell you? No, I think I was given, you know, I, I, uh, Turk was really, I was really close to Amanda Turk and she was definitely a mentor for me and she was around. And so she was like, this is what I did. Um, she gave me novels that they, they used, um, you know, and, and she was definitely a resource. I think I, I utilized her, um, quite a bit. Madison, what was the curriculum at Bailey? Gosh. Um, so <laughs> when, so my initial thought was like, you know, what textbook did we have or who what was <laughs> yeah. on the walls yeah, or things like that. And, um, and I, as I was thinking about it, um, <laughs> and, and thinking about the day-to-day at Bailey, um, our students just didn't let us get away with the textbook. Um, there, like, if I brought in a worksheet to do, there was just a riot. Like, it wasn't an option um, to do something that um, that was normal or what looked like normal, at least in math, like sitting in rows, sitting quietly, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. staring at the board. It just, it just couldn't happen. I think the curriculum was so student centered by necessity. It was, um, it was what do the students want to learn and how can we get them engaged in a way that they feel um, passionate about it and that they are interested enough in it to, um, for us to, to hook into this algebra content or what were, what were um, the goals that we're trying to get to, which were often not um, on the test. Um, there were things like, you know, like, how do you how do you figure out a puzzle that's mathematical or, or things like that and how do you think about this critically and so um or these mathematical problems critically um or how do you question the world and those are like really really big and so it, it allowed us like everyone's been saying here that um it sounds really utopic um that that christian um let us plan exactly what we needed to plan for our students in the needs that they had on, on a day-to-day basis, but he really did. The novice teachers started with traditional ideas about curriculum, but learned to follow the lead of their students. Julie Hasfield, the experienced, highly accomplished teacher, was quick to focus curriculum in what she calls the vision, the mantra we heard in the very first episode, individuals of character, scholars for life, leaders now and tomorrow. I think the curriculum was the vision. I think the vision that Christian set out, I remember the faculty meeting where he set out this this vision for what Bailey was going to be. And it was, it was basically the mantra that the students say every day. Um, that set the tone for what the curriculum was. It didn't matter what we did in the curriculum as long as we were matching that vision. But of course, Ms. Hasfield had the experience and wisdom to turn that mantra into concrete learning activities for the scholars, as she told me in an earlier interview. And so one day I just remember stopping what I was doing and I sat down with the students and I said, what is it that you care about? Like what, let's this, we're gonna, we're not gonna do this anymore. I'm gonna put this notebook aside. What is it that you are worried about that you care about right now, right in this moment. And we were having that year a, um, I think it was the Arctic blast is what they called it. And it was just a 
several weeks of really, really, really cold weather. And, you know, the students said, well, here's what we're dealing with. Like, we're coming in every day covered with blankets. I mean, you remember this. They would stand outside the school and be covered with um, these blankets. Um, they would, um, you know, they, they said our houses don't keep us warm enough. Our apartments um, don't keep us warm enough. We're cold. You know, we're having to save, you know, save money, um, not, not get as, you know, not buy as much food and everything else because of um, the um, having to pay more in heating bills. And I said, okay, so let's look at that. And we started brainstorming, turning that into a STEM challenge. How can we, how can we make changes to where we live um, in order to make our, make our places more energy efficient and lower our heating bills? Um, at that same time, there was a STEM challenge uh, sponsored by Samsung. And um, they were asking students to identify a, a challenge in their community and solve it. And so we took that challenge and we, um, we entered this national contest. Um, and this was, me, this was our, my, my students in my eighth grade class. And so as a class, we, we worked on this, and we, um, you know, we had some experts come in and talk to us. We, had some, we got some donations from Home Depot to make some changes um, in, t in their homes, and um, they were able to um, actually, you know, change their lights to um, uh, energy-efficient lights and make some uh, changes into to their insulation around doors and things like that. Um, they brought in their electricity bills and were able to show some differences. They put together a video about this project. We'll explore more in a later episode about how this particular activity impacted not just the students involved, but the school culture. For now, Principal Sawyer makes clear that the curriculum emerging from that vision isn't an abstraction, but a series of concrete and dynamic moments owned by the teachers and students. I think for me, the curriculum was moments like when we, you know, the teachers gathered around with Julie and we launched a hot air balloon out front um, or the students drilled a hole in the library wall in the makerspace. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, when Chrissy, you know, a new teacher to the, the field came in and was brought that creativity, that that insight, the curriculum was really not a set experience. The curriculum was an evolution. The curriculum was an invention and it really was a STEM process. I remember that hot air balloon instance and to go back to what Julie was saying earlier, I think, and Julie, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the first time we <laughs> launched that hot air balloon, it was a total flop. Right, Absolutely. and then we. Had... Yeah, <laughs> but like, it went up, and NPR was there. Right, and it was like supposed to be this big deal, and it went up like two feet and crashed. But like, how beautiful was that? That like you were talking about earlier, that like the allowance to fail, um, and that like even though I'm sure that that was like, well, seriously, like that's not how that was supposed to go. But really, nothing at Bailey went how it was supposed to go, and and everything, like you said, everything was an experiment, and um, and we were given we were allowed to fail. And I think students saw that and, and took that to heart for themselves as well. Barb, I think that also like the curriculum, it had to do with like the culture that we were building for the students as well. I mean, when I think about Bailey, I think of how the students felt safe in our classrooms and at school. And you know, that I remember like I had a yearbook club and I had so many students join the yearbook club and they created that yearbook 
like on their own. And I still have it to this day or like, you know, Christian held like an award ceremony and the kids were the MCs. And I remember like my sixth graders were so excited to be MCs and, you know, um, Cassie made a like whole like dance with the kids for that. And those are things that I remember that I'm sure the students remember. And I, I think over curriculum, that's like even, you know, something that helps them learn. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that's, you're answering my question before I've asked it, Chrissy, which is, <laughs> you know, there is a curriculum. It's in this, this vision document I have. It says global literacy 60 minutes a day, readers and writers time, 90 minutes a day, math, mm-hmm. 75 minutes a day, science, 75 minutes a day, and related arts, 75 minutes each day. So they had, there was a curriculum, and yet not one of you said that. So what, mm-hmm. how do you think about the, the, what was driving the fact that you're prioritizing not the subjects, but this STEM process, Christian? Because this well, wasn't I, a hidden I, curriculum. I, I know, we all knew I, it. I'm going to say, I mean, this didn't, this came from conversation after conversation with our teachers, feeding this vision and which direction we should go. Uh, and I think that was a special memory I have is how this was constantly being co-constructed. And we, you know, we had resources from uh, different, you know, the Journeys curriculum, I believe, is what mm-hmm. what the district was using. <laughs> and at the time, I mean, our teachers just said, this is not working. Uh, we need to grow from this. And I also want to continue to acknowledge how many of those conversations, yes, were exciting. And yes, we were creative. But there were lots of times that were deep conversations about the challenge and about, you know, mm-hmm. Christian this is a huge lift and our teachers did it. These teachers constantly kept interrogating their practice, reflecting on their practice. It was on a nightly basis because there wasn't just a scope and sequence and we had to stay ahead of the curve and our teachers led all of that. too good to be true, all this co-creation. So you might be wondering, did I cherry-pick the four folks who could and would say this? No, I heard it over and over again in individual interviews with anybody who would talk with me. Resident Laura Lofman reported this similar sense of responsiveness to what was happening in scholars' lives. Yeah, we could take, uh, you know, a topic that came up you know, in, in the real world. And we could make it a teaching moment. We could lean into it. We could, and conversely, you know, if the topic came up like in the kids' neighborhood, you know, that which it did, I remember, and I can't remember what the specific situation was, but I remember that morning, something really heavy had happened in the kids' neighborhood or maybe that night, right, the night before. And I remember, I think we were all like sitting on our desks for some reason, but, um, I remember with that first block of kids, we just like, I don't, we might have scrapped the whole lesson, but we took the time to talk about it 
because it was that important. Or I also remember there was a time where um, one of our students, I think there was a fight, you know, and the student was removed. And to court, we, we had that restorative conversation as a class. And we had the time to, <laughs> we had the time or we made the time to take the time to talk about the things that mattered. You know, I mean, because, yeah, cool, let's teach this Tennessee state standard. But if our scholars are thinking about what they experienced last night or what they just saw, who it doesn't matter how awesome of a lesson we have. They're not going to be ready to receive any of it. So it it felt really great that we had the ability to to do what we needed to do to meet the needs of our kids, which I know any administrator now would say, oh, yeah, we do that. But I feel like when push comes to shove, like that's not that's not what happens. That's not what they they always want. And I knew that we could do it because the leadership and the direction that we had was building scholars, leaders, not just today, but for the future. And we need our we need our young adults to be whole, whole individuals that all of their, their needs are taken care of, right? As these educators connected their scholars to life events and big ideas and crafted interesting learning activities, did they worry about test scores? Clearly, they weren't teaching to the test. Even the newbies understood what Stanford researcher Linda Darling-Hammond insists, that teaching to the test is not good teaching. So they responded to their students with the best instruction they could imagine. And they got the test scores anyway. I remember distinctly the conversation, you know, the conversations with the district about, you know, this is the aim line for the test scores. And if this aim line is not hit, we will not meet the requirements of the turnaround grant and the turnaround process. So, I mean, this was constantly in the background. And I know it weighed on our teachers Mm -hmm. and our students uh, as we tried to push forward, but not do it in the oppressive ways that I think silence student voice, suppress learning and teacher creativity that can be born from such pressure. Okay, now Madison and Chrissy, you were brand new. I mean, you were both newbies. Mm -hmm. What, um, were you more or less bound by state standards and state tests than your more experienced colleagues? I wonder if you were just too naive to even understand, you know, it mattered or were you aware of it? Yeah, I think that's what I was going to say is that I, um, you know, the only experience I had teaching before that was at an international school for a year um, overseas and then was getting my master's at Vanderbilt. And so I was I was getting um, a lot of messages both in at Vandy and at um, Bailey that you adapt to students needs and you um, the state standards aren't everything. And that's not that's not the end goal. And so um, I don't think I knew any different necessarily, um, but we did definitely know the pressure of mm-hmm. meeting these standards. And not only did we know it, but the kids knew it. Yeah, I, I would agree what, with what she said. I mean, there definitely was a pressure. I mean, I just I do vaguely remember like maybe staff meetings or something where we were told like, about, you know, that line that Christian was talking about. And, you know, we did what we could, right, to help them meet those goals. But I think all of us 
knew that they wouldn't reading, for example, reading like a basil, it wasn't going to help them or drilling in questions wasn't going to help them. So I think we continued to do what, what we knew was best practice while also having that pressure at the same time. Um, you know, I, I remember we would do like, you know, boot camps for like the TCAP or whatever mm-hmm. it was at that point. Um, and stuff like that, but you know, data was there, but I don't know, the kids that I taught were, were very low. And so for me, it was just like, I just want them to grow. So that was just my, my, my goal. I had very little experience with testing, um, up until that point of what, what it meant. And, um, I think my first experience was like our beginning of the year baseline testing, you know, which told us, Mm -hmm. you know, where kids should be tracked. And I, I saw kids in, in my class that were testing at a kindergarten level of, of math. And then I would have a conversation with them and they would be able to talk to me about pretty high level mathematics, at least on grade level. And so I, I think um, just kind of experientially, just in that, even in that one test, I was like, this test doesn't reflect what this child knows. So then what will the next test mean to me or to anyone? Um, So it was hard to put a lot of value in um, the tests, even though it was such a crucial part of, of Bailey continuing, or we thought it was at least. So, I mean, that's a perfect segue to what I was going to say. You know, we had, we ended up with, when I tell the story of Bailey, I say, you know, we got double digit gains in math and science, you know, over those three years. And so how did we do it? And we can talk about curriculum. We can, you know, talk about, you know, different programs we implemented, but ultimately, what it comes down to is that kid that Madison was just talking about, he suddenly decided that he was going to put forth the effort to try on this exam because he had, he had an identity um, as a scholar. He, was, he understood himself as someone who could do this test and should show what he knows. Keenan Kerr reiterates what Christian and others have said as she claims... Yeah, a healthy disregard for testing, knowing that it's a fact of life. Hopefully one day it it will not be. We'll get some sense. Um, But the other thing that, as I was saying, is kind of a laugh at is if you teach, again, going back to that teach your pants off, if you teach well, the test scores are going to improve Anyways, (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> you know, you know um, at least that's been my experience. If you're doing what you should be doing as an educator, and again, that's very broad, but uh, in general, the test scores are, are going to come as a result, but, but they shouldn't be an, a means to an end. you've heard global literacy mentioned as a school subject. And over and over, we've called Bailey a STEM school. I wanted to probe how these two foci overlapped. So I asked where global literacy came from, and the Bailey crew took it from there. And I always felt like social studies was at the root of what 
I think was so meaningful for the Bailey scholars. The Constitution, the rights to critically analyze uh, social structures and some of the pieces in the world that were just right outside Bailey's doors. And so, you know, that's <laughs> what I had in mind was really only the beginning because our teachers, they took this and grew it into something way more impactful. What, Christian, did you, were you thinking we have to spend more time on literacy and so we're going to get, we're going to stretch it to include, specifically to include social studies or was it really more philosophical than that? No, it was both. It was that and it was the philosophical, but the practical. We needed yeah. to be reading and writing for more time. Mm -hmm. And we also didn't need to segment social studies mm -hmm. and literacy. Mm -hmm. um, I can remember we had conversations about, I mentioned Gloria Ladson Billings earlier, this idea of transformational teaching and pedagogy, this idea we can look into the world and read about what's in the world, analyze for change, and then actually lead the discussion about change. I mean, I can remember, uh, Julie, your project where students looked into the neighborhood for sustainable energy practices, reading and writing, you know, global literacy was not just confined to social studies and literacy spaces, if you will, it started to grow throughout the whole building. I thought it was awesome. I mean, even now, like as a you know, as a, an elementary school teacher, you do try to integrate, as Christian said, like when you're like teaching social studies, I like to bring in, when I taught fifth grade, I would, if we were learning about the Revolutionary War, I would always, we would read stories about the Revolutionary War. We would read newspapers, like primary documents and stuff. And so it is that like, it, it is true. That's like just something that they go together so well. And that's how students learn by, by kind of, integrating themselves right into a story or into history like through documents and so um i loved christian's philosophy i i i remember a moment where he came in and um talked to my team and he showed us like some of what he came up with and and he gave us his insight and i thought that was really powerful and it kind of changed how i was thinking about everything it was earlier in the year but you know he um, I, I love that he had that background because it was his vision, but he also was so passionate about it and it, it made everyone else passionate about it too. So, Keenan Kerr, the ELA resident who told me she was teaching her pants off, offered me an example of how she and resident Julia Conrad integrated ELA and social studies in global literacy. But Julia and I pretty much had carte blanche to do what we wanted, which would probably scare some people. For some reason, we decided we were going to read A Raisin in the Sun. And that was at the end of the year. And what students ultimately did after reading the text, analyzing key scenes, talking about um, the history behind the play, so like redlining, you know, and this was at the eighth graders. Um, they had to select a key scene, scene that was important to them for some reason, and rewrite it, reenact it, and then we recorded them. We had brought in all kinds of props and costumes, but that was the most joy-filled learning experience for us, for Julia and I. Um, 
but also I think for the, the students. Also to think about with the history piece, what's changed, you know? <laughs> what this family is enduring um, in this play, has that changed? Is our context still the same? And oh, by the way, how is, is the housing discrimination that they're experiencing, how is that going on in our own community? For the educators at Bailey, making the work more rigorous involved what they called voice and choice, intended to inspire both competence and confidence in the scholars. And I think it it showed up in um, in strangely in ways that I didn't expect in our ways that we differentiated for um, students. You would think that differentiation would mean that I pull a group of kids and and force them to be in the remediation group or um, or in the advanced group we're tracking. But I think the the voice and choice um, had a huge impact on how we just designed the classroom space into kind of these pods of activities and students would rotate through them and we would have um, Alex Casares in one and, and Keisha Harding in another and then me in another one and Miss um, Sanders in another one and, and we would um, we just had the the people which I don't know how that was funded or how you all rung the budget to make that happen but I would sometimes have four teachers in my classroom to where we could give students um, voice and choice in what they wanted to do and, and um, it had a huge impact on how we just designed the learning experience for kids. Yeah, walking into Madison's classroom was like walking into a coffee shop. I mean, kids <laughs> were, you know, sitting in small groups and chatting and it felt very, I think Christian used the word earlier, messy, but, but it mm -hmm. worked and the kids were engaged in math. Yeah, it was also really chaotic, I think, a lot of times. And, it, and I think for some students, it, it, um, that was really hard. And for some students, it worked really well. And I think with anything, there's, there's pros and cons. But yeah, I think a lot of it, too, was a student sitting in the back of the classroom, like throwing a tennis ball up against the wall because he didn't want to be there that day. You know? And so, um, yes, yeah, some kids were doing math and some kids were throwing tennis balls up against the walls. And like, you just went with it. It was just... And then you went home and cried because, like, yep. the, it was just hard. It was really hard. And it but... wasn't just math either. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we all felt the deep, um, compelling, almost pressure that was, at times, we felt it being defined through the test score aim line. And then when we really gave thought to it, it was much deeper. It was, you know, to bring this school alive, to bring the vision, the incredible potential of our students to the surface. Voice and Choice came alive with something called STEM electives, weekly encounters that were a powerful integrative curriculum tool for both intellectual and social development. But I would say one thing that I think was really successful in bringing all the teachers on board was this idea of the STEM electives. And Basically, STEM electives were a club time. Um, at another school, you might, might call it a club time where students can join a club and go with a teacher and, and do something that's kind of fun. Um, so we did that, but we put a STEM spin on it. And we said, um, teachers come up with, you know, think of your own passions. You know, what is something you're interested in? 
and turn it into an elective class, but we're going to turn it into a STEM elective class. We want you to pull in some STEM in, uh, into this uh, club that you're doing. So one example would be Keisha Harding's fashion design. So you don't think about STEM being involved in fashion design. Well, I mean, that was a really popular STEM elective because, you know, the girls are really interested in, you know, designing fashion. And, um, but she did all kinds of amazing things with that. She integrated um, LED lights into her designs. Julie, I will never forget for the rest of my career how when we were, you know, you were dreaming up STEM electives and coming up with this vision the day students were enrolling <laughs> and how the whole room was filled with, you know, our students enrolling in these different electives and how you went through every single student's wish list for these electives and you never gave up getting them their first or second choice. And then if they didn't get that, you went and talked with them to get them in the subject of their interest. It was, it was important. I think, I think that um, having, you know, students, it goes back to that voice and choice. You know, students, when they, when they ha feel like they have um, control over, you know, their, their lives, they're, they're more invested. And so, you know, giving them that time in the school day to do something they choose to do mm -hmm. was really important. Yep. Chrissy, was your yearbook group, was that a STEM elective? It was, and I forgot that that's what it was called. I forgot that it was during the school day and not after school. But, I mean, we somehow, I don't know how Christian did it, but we somehow got cameras and got it into their hands, and they were going around the school taking pictures, um, which I'm sure they were thrilled to have that uh, freedom. Um, but it it was really cool. Like, they planned out all the designs. Um yeah, it was fun. And Madison, shall we talk about snakes? Yeah, that was. <laughs> I That's just right. I, man, I totally forgot about. I mean, how could I forget Bailey? Um, we had a snake named Bailey. Um, that uh, was a corn snake. And yeah, I had the herpetology elective, um, and then one year did a neuroscience elective as well. But the herpetology one definitely like. When you said STEM electives, I just got this huge smile on my face because I <laughs> had kind of completely forgotten about it. But my the two pictures that I have up in my um, yes. office right now are um, one um, just was writing on the whiteboard. One student just said, I love herpetology. And I was like, in what world do you, do you have middle schoolers writing that on a whiteboard? And I like took a picture of it and printed it out because it was just so endearing to me. And then the other one was two students um, who I just adored, um, who were uh, just on the floor um, with their chins up against their hands, like toddlers um, playing with a snake and just like right up in its face and just cuddling it and <laughs> so cute with it. And one of them has, um, one of those students has since passed away, but he, it was just a, um, I don't know, it was just a really beautiful moment to me, just those big windows with the hardwood floors and a snake just, um, and these boys just having the time of their life, um, enjoying some STEM elective time, which just felt, it just felt really uh, humanizing, I think in a way, just to be on the floor crawling around with them, enjoying science. That STEM electives would be humanizing is typical about how things got productively confounded in the Bailey curriculum. So that a STEM perspective required global literacy Global literacy equips students with 21st century skills, and both STEM and global literacy offered scholars caring and competence. 
But pulling this off depended on being able to accept the brilliance that Dr. Sawyer saw in them as teachers and on being able to recognize the brilliance that he knew lived in the Bailey scholars. Even where kids had what today we would call learning loss, they had the capacity of moving forward. I asked math resident Sam Fout, self-proclaimed math geek, how many kids at Bailey just didn't have the ability to understand mathematical concepts. And he replied, Almost zero. There were, there were, there were legit, legitimately a couple of kids with undiagnosed issues that, that needed other supports. If you're asking what percentage of them were like, would never, even if they had been given every opportunity, that's zero. But I don't, I, I, I don't think there were any that, that, that had been given every opportunity. They, they all had the ability to comprehend what was going on given the right opportunities. Um, and, and while there were definitely some that, that had stronger suits than others, like, God, Ignacio, I don't think, even if I had a whole year just with him, I think he would still be struggling with number sense. But that kid could almost do calculus when it came to geometry. Um, and so they, they had their strengths and weaknesses. The sense of urgency about academic press came out in a focus on acceleration rather than remediation. It's the same focus on acceleration, rather than tutoring, that many educators are recommending as the most fitting response to pandemic learning loss. An attitude of acceleration was everywhere at Bailey, but nowhere more dramatically than in the decision in 2014 to teach every eighth grader algebra, even though just 10% were proficient on the seventh grade math state test. Um, rather than teaching at a kindergarten level, which the testing told us we should be doing, um, we all, which obviously would not actually happen, um, but we all agreed that, um, or a lot of us agreed that, that students would really thrive in an environment where they felt um, like they were being challenged. Rather than telling the kids what we thought that they could do, um, kind of let them into this ball game and see what they thought they could do. Um, and I, I think it was met with um, reservation by even people at Bailey, but also in the district. Um, like I said earlier, just saying that it's a bad idea to skip a grade level um, of, of content. But I think we did a lot of um, laying out the standards, looking at the eighth grade standards, looking at the algebra standards, and, and seeing that they were pretty closely aligned. There was a lot of overlap between them. And um, I think a lot of the conversations that we had as a planning team where that we don't we don't actually have to hit every standard but rather than rather than going really shallow on all the standards and covering everything we were gonna um, choose ones that we knew that were really important um, for the EOC and for also for high school education and and for just you know like we said mathematical literacy um, and go really conceptually deep on those fewer standards and spend our time um, you know get where it was most valuable. Kelly Aldrich Boyd, who was the math leader, concurred. Um, I thought it was an ambitious move considering where the kids were, but um I also thought that it wasn't it wasn't too bad 
because a lot of the standards from eighth grade math and algebra one are the same. A lot of them are the same. And it was a lot of overlap. So I didn't think that it was, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good move. I thought it was a good push for the kids to be pushed and challenged beyond what they thought that they could do. But in the end, the decision lay with the principal. So I asked Dr. Sawyer about it. One of the key reasons was when we looked at the longitudinal impact of being able to have learned uh, algebra in eighth grade, our Bailey scholars deserve the same access to mm -hmm. more rigorous high school pathways and stackable progressions of courses. And when we looked at, and I sat with Kelly and with uh, Karen and Madison and others on the team, and we discovered that seventh grade math, just like Madison was saying, was actually at this point a waste of time. We needed to move quickly into eighth. Our students, we believe, could do it. We had a teacher willing to think outside of the box with this and accelerate the students to their potential uh, so that they could have open doors when they went to high school and had options for more accelerated learning. And what was the outcome? Um, I don't remember the exact numbers. I mean, if you're, th if you're talking outcome being test scores, um, they were very good. I remember, I think it was something like 70% of kids yeah. yep. um, were able to advance into take geometry if they wanted to. And I think that that was a really important piece of this puzzle was that like that students could take algebra if they wanted to as a freshman um, and that they weren't forced on this pathway. Um, but I remember sitting down with every student at the end of the year and talking about their EOC score and we did one-on-ones with each student and telling them, um, you know, you can, you can take geometry. Do you want to take geometry? And just their faces being like, wait, I did it. I, I, I was able to do this. And I, um, <clears throat> I think that was just a really beautiful piece of it was, um, seeing them want it and go get it. Madison mused about the positive impact of offering the same challenge to all kids. I think another piece of, of the acceleration puzzle um, was in, in eighth grade, um, like yes, we were, we were pushing kids to do things that um, maybe they even questioned that they could do and that a lot of people outside of, um, outside of that um, vision thought that they could do. Um, but also there was no comparative class. It, we were all doing it together. It was a community that was accelerating as one rather than um, there being a smart kid class and a not smart kid class. Um, and students knowing that, they, they can recognize when those things happen, when kids are tracked into a higher level, an honors class, and when they're left behind in the normal class or in the remedial class or whatever. Um, and there wasn't, that kind of labeling, and I think that was huge. I, I don't think I really realized the impact of that until I went on to a school that did track students and saw kids call themselves in the stupid class or in the smart class, and um, we didn't have that kind of messaging, and so it, there wasn't an option. It was accelerated. We just, we just did it, and students um, led the way in doing that. Interestingly, pushback came from the district level. A lot of people who were professionals in this field, like I remember having a conversation with the head of the um, the math department of MMPS saying that we shouldn't be doing this at the Algebra One training that I had to go to over the summer. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was there were those voices from 
people who did care about the standards saying this is a terrible idea. Um, you shouldn't do this. And, and then also, you know, voices that I trusted um, within the Bailey community saying, you know, this is, this is good for our students. One of the criticisms was that the algebra end of course test was easier than the state TCAP test and that the Bailey group did this to game the system and get better test scores. We received a lot of messages about potential motivations for why this work was being done and, um, and what we were trying to get out of it. And I think truly, like, it was very much student-centered. And, um, and I don't mean that in a, in a way that was like everything was rosy, um, but that the work that we did wasn't actually about test scores in the end. And even though um, we were focused on that, it was really about what was best for students, um, you know, 10 years down the road. Every single time I walked in our classrooms, uh, I saw teachers who saw limitless potential in our students. That was the filter through which our educators, our deans, our counselors looked at the Bailey scholars. And to me, that is, at least in my own journey, when I had a teacher looking through filters at me as if I had limitless potential, learning was easier, stretching, going to the sky with my potential. And I, so I think when we think about what made acceleration possible, it's the filters through which our educators looked at the student potential. can we say about the curriculum at Bailey? What was written in that early document I found is what happened, sort of. But it's not what anybody remembers or what moved them to do what they did. Teachers really were the lifeblood of the curriculum. What was enacted was so much richer, so much more challenging, so much more humanizing than what was written. I offer a couple of other observations. STEM wasn't a silver bullet. It was a way of thinking about kids' futures and maybe a way to get some extra grant money. Global literacy was a nod in two directions at once. Yes, kids need more time reading and writing and speaking and listening and thinking. And kids need to be thinking about ideas that are both big enough to grab them and culturally relevant enough to make sense to them. What was it that Julie Hasfield said? That the Bailey educators and scholars didn't feel bound by the rules? That they were willing and able to fail freely? But is that what the kids themselves thought then? What they think today? It's time to hear from those young folks who were students at Bailey a few years back. I think what you'll hear is that there was no hidden curriculum at Bailey no mixed messages or ulterior motives. The scholars knew what they were getting and they valued it, even then. So join me next month when Bailey Scholars take over the mic. <laughs>